Pastor John um, and his wife Erica were some people that actually were in our corner and uh, really grateful for them because, uh, as he said, yeah, when we first started, it was uh, difficult getting things off the ground. So I wanted to thank him and the pastoral team uh, uh, for allowing me to have this opportunity to come and share with you all today. Um, Thank you for all their uh, people who have supported me, um, been in Bible study with me and stuff uh, together and uh, roommates and different people that have come. So just really appreciate you guys and I'm glad to be able to share with you. Uh, today. I had an interesting experience happen recently. I had a haircut, um, and uh, I was, as I was having this haircut, in the middle of it, the lady um, who was giving the haircut, she, you know, she's you know, doing her thing, and all of a sudden she asks, so I got a question for you, and I'm like, okay, go for it. And she's like, I know you said that you work at Davenport University, which is close here. But I just have to ask you, where are you actually from? Now, I kind of smiled because I've had this before, and I said, guess. And so she turns off her clippers for a second, and she thinks about it, and she goes, Romania? And then she just, I let her kind of go, and she was, you know, guessing a bunch of different countries. And I was like, no, not that one, no. Not that one, not that one either. And uh, I, as she went through them, I said, I'm not from any of those, but I, before I tell you where I'm actually from, why do you think that I'm from another country? And I ask this because I've had people in the past few years ask me this same question. And I've heard Romania, South Africa, Norway, Germany, somewhere in Europe, all these different places, and I, all, whenever I ask why, they always answer with the exact same reason. And so I asked her, why do you think that I'm from another country? And she goes, I, I can't really place it, but your accent is just so thick. Now, I personally don't think I have an accent. Um, This is a reveal, but I'm from Michigan. Um, And so, um, in case anybody was wondering, that's where I'm actually from. I have a very thick Michigander accent. And um, and I I realized, though, as this happened, as she was saying this and we kind of laughed about it, um, every time that that's happened for me in the past few years where someone's thought I was from another country, it's because I was just hanging around with some international students just before. And I realized that I had this tendency I didn't even know I had to start picking up and adopting other people's accents and way of talking. Um, I, one of my f- favorite people to take uh, road trips with is my dad. And uh, we actually talked about this once and we realized we actually have the same thing. Like I can literally measure how far south we've traveled by how thick his accent is. Um, and I'm like, whoa, Kentucky, there we go. You know? And so um, I, I realized we both had this thing. But I think all of us at some level have had this where you've had a time where you're hanging around someone and you started to pick up their habits, started to talk like them, maybe act like them. Maybe you even started to like the things they liked. This happens in dating all the time, right? You uh, like the thing because you actually like the person, right? Uh, And what's really fun is when somebody's just pretending to like the thing, right? Because they know that the other person likes it. And then, you know, a year goes by and then come to find out, what, I thought you always liked green beans, I thought country music was your thing. No, I just said that. Um, And it's just kind of fun to watch when people are just pretending. But every now and then, something different happens. 
I have these uh, three friends, and they're Michigan fans, Michigan football, right? And uh, anybody a Michigan football fan in here? Basketball too? Um, oh, good. Okay. So, um, and uh, there's these three friends of mine, and I, you know, I'd watch the games and stuff while they were around because it was, it was their thing. And then I noticed something happened. Over the past few years, I've had these conversion moments, okay? And I found myself doing strange things like watching a game by myself and buying tickets. And then I even put them as winning my bracket. I don't know why I did that. But, um, and then I did something even stranger. I bought a Michigan spatula, okay? Like, if, you know, shirts. I got all this stuff. And one day when I was doing this, I, like, I, I was like, what's happening to me? And I, I pulled my roommate Cole aside. And I was like, Cole, I've got to confess something to you. I think I'm becoming a Michigan fan. <laughs> and he's like, that's what I thought, you know. And so um, and I realized that what was someone's, other people's thing, it was what they liked, it was their thing, became my thing. And it transitioned. I wonder if that can happen with sports. If that can happen with music or food or even things like accents, is it possible that that can also happen with faith? And I think that generally that's the way it happens, that somebody introduces you to Christianity or to faith. And while it's natural and necessary for it to start there, while it's natural and necessary for our faith to depend on someone else, I want us to wrestle with the idea today that if our faith never becomes our own, then it will die. That a faith cannot remain in the mode of dependency on other people. That at some point, we all have these intersection moments where we have to ask ourselves, is their faith become my faith? as it transitioned and become something I own personally for myself. I think all of us have those intersection moments in our life where we have to decide that. And today, we're going to look at a young king named Joash who actually was faced with this very dilemma. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Now, I don't know how many of you... Uh, have read the books of Kings and Chronicles. Um, but in the books of Kings and Chronicles, every time there's a new king, the author introduces them with one of two statements. One of two statements. The two statements are either, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did what was evil. Right or evil. So I don't know if you've read the story of Joash or not, maybe familiar with it or um, not, but. I want us to do a little vote, okay? And I want it to be a little interactive. So, and I know this could be a shot in the dark because maybe you haven't read his story, but how many of you would say that you think that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Go ahead and put your hand up if you think he did what was right, okay? Kind of just a shot in the dark. How many of you think he did what was evil? And did not, okay, more, okay. Um, and so, and the answer is, it says, and he did what was 
Actually, before we do that, I have to give you a little bit of background just to make sure that we understand the story. It's kind of like Star Wars. You've got to watch one, two, and three before five, four, five, and six, right? Um, so in the story of Kings, okay, in Chronicles, when this started, shortly after King, or Joash was born as a baby, his dad, who was the current king at the time, dies in battle. And back then, when the king dies in battle, the crown would immediately go to the next heir in line to the throne. Well, Joash had older brothers and sisters, and so it was probably going to go to one of them. However, Joash's grandmother, Queen Ataliah, saw her chance to take over. And so she moved quickly, and she slaughtered the whole family. Okay, it sounds kind of almost like something out of Game of Thrones, right? Okay, it's like crazy, but she does this, and after she kills the whole family, She takes the crown for herself, and thus she becomes queen of the whole land. And she causes everybody to abandon the house of the Lord and start worshiping other gods and idols. And she even has them loot and vandalize the house of the Lord as everybody departs from it. And it looked like darkness had won. But little did she know that one, escaped. Joash. Insert epic title music, okay? Um, And Joash. Joash's nurse saw what was happening in the, um, the palace, and so she scooped the baby up in her arms, Joash, and brought him to the one place that the queen would never look, the house of the Lord, the temple. And she hid him there. Her husband was the high priest. His name was Jehoiada. And he was a good man. And during this time, he protected the young boy Joash and raised him in the ways of the Lord. And for six long years, they waited. Waited for the time. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada, this good priest, decided that it was time to act. And so he formed a coup. And he got some guards to surround the young boy, Joash. And he called all the assembly, all the people of the land, into the the temple. And in the presence of them all, he crowned this seven-year-old king of the entire land. All the people cheered because the true king had returned. But Queen Ataliah, she heard the cheering in the distance. And so she rushed over, pushed open the doors, and she saw the young king with the crown on his head. And she cried, treason, treason. And the priest said, quick, seize her. And the guards rushed and they took her outside and executed her for the wickedness she had done. And thus, Joash, this seven-year-old boy, became king of the whole land. And Jehoiada, this person who protected him for all these years, this high priest, became sort of like a father figure or a mentor to him. And together, they went on to do good things in the land. And so at this point, it came to the point in the story where it was about to introduce him. The authors were going to introduce him with that statement that we talked about a minute ago. And at this point, I was like on the edge of my seat. And I was like, come on, you can do this. I was like rooting for him, practically crossing my fingers like I was praying for him. Come on, you can do this. And it gets to that point where it's going to introduce him. And it says, and he, really quick, anybody's vote changed? Whose vote changed? Yes? Uh, anybody read ahead? Don't read ahead. Okay. Um, um, and it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I was like, yes, that's my boy. Come on. It, it, it was right. 
I was so excited because I was like, this is what I was hoping for. And then I read it again. And I read it a little more carefully this time. And it said, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. I thought, well, that, that's kind of a curious little phrase to tag on the end. Why not just leave it that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? And as you read, you find out he did do good things. In fact, Joash and this priest Jehoiada, they repaired the temple and they restored worship. There's actually even archaeological evidence of this. There's something called the Joash tablet that recounts how he and this priest uh, repaired the temple. And it goes to great lengths about it. So it's like uh, something that supports that this this biblical story actually happened. And so he did what was right for a season. But then something happens. Jehoiada, the person who was that priest who protected him, that good mentor, that father figure, dies. And when Jehoiada died, so did Joash's faith because it never was his faith. He just borrowed it. Question. How many of you have had a person in your life where there's somebody that inspired you or impacted you or influenced your faith in a positive way? If you think about that person, question is this. What happens when that person is no longer around? When they go, does your faith go also? Well, the story continues. And... uh, Second Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 through 19, it says this. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. So we see in this story, there's, in just even these three verses, there's three movements that happen. First, his mentor is removed. This good influence is removed. Other influences enter that are negative. God cares about him and sends people to warn them. Mentor removed, new influences enter, God sends people to bring him back, but he doesn't listen. And this is the crux of the whole story. This is the hinge point. Because at this point, this is where he is at a crossroads, an intersection, and he has to decide, is Jehoiada's faith mine, or am I going to follow this new group? And he's kind of, there's an internal tug of war, and you can almost sense the turmoil happening and the erosion of his faith happening. And see, I, I resonate with this story because this is what happened to me. When I grew up, I I'm, was very fortunate to grow up in a, a Christian home, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, my parents uh, raised me to love the Lord, and I actually wanted to be a pastor since I was eight years old. 
And then uh, we went to a youth group, and I even went to a Christian school all the way up through middle school. But then something happened in middle school. The church school, the Christian school that I went to, closed. And when that closed, I went to a public school. My old friend group was gone, and so I had to try and make new friends. And I found myself desperate to try and make friends. And I was doing anything I could to make friends, even sweeping my faith under the carpet. I remember there was this one time in class where we had kind of an interesting assignment to do. This might sound a little odd, but this is what the assignment was. You had to write down a list of characteristics you wanted your future spouse to have on a piece of paper, and then you had to trade with people, okay? All right, speed dating, you know. um, And uh, (laughs) the great thing was, it was anonymous, okay? So we'd pass the papers around, and uh, um, so you didn't know whose was whose. And the person next to me, when he got his paper, he just burst out laughing. And I said to him, what's so funny? He said, you're not going to believe this. But the person whose paper I'm reading wrote down that they want the person to be a Christian. Isn't that stupid? And because I wanted to be in this friend group, because I wanted them to think well of me, I laughed too. And I found myself basically mocking this thing that I grew up with. There was a person sitting in front of us who was an athlete, and everybody respected him and looked up to him. And he heard us laughing, and he turned around and basically stood up for his faith. Come to find out later, it was actually his letter uh, that was passed around. And he was willing to stand up for it. And when he stood up for it, it hit me between the eyes. Because it made me realize the faith that I thought I had was more loaned to me than owned by me. It was something that was loaned to me by my parents and family. And it was something that was convenient for me to practice while there was other Christians around. But the moment it was put into challenge or question, it wasn't socially acceptable anymore, was the moment that I gave it up. And I found myself at a crossroads where I had to decide, is this faith mine or is it just my parents? Am I letting someone else love Jesus for me or do I love Jesus for myself? And In a room this size, I'm guessing I'm not alone in this. I'm guessing that each one of us have either had or will have or know someone who's had one of these intersection moments where they had to decide, is my faith my own or is it just somebody else's? It could be like a lot. Mine happened when I was in high school. For some people, it happens in college. Other people, it happens in your adult life, like something happens with your career or a loved one, and you find yourself at a crisis moment where you have to decide, do I actually believe this for myself? Sometimes it's not a moment, though. Sometimes it's more like when you go to the beach. You may remember this when you're younger, uh, when you're at the beach, and you go out in the water, and you're throwing the Frisbee with your friends, and all of a sudden, after you know, playing for a little bit, you suddenly look back and you're kind of shocked when you look back at the beach because you realized, oh, I drifted down shore. And there's something that happens sometimes called a riptide or an undertow. And you realize I drifted. I think all of us at some level have had either a moment or a season where we realize that that's happened. In my particular context with college ministry, I see this happen all the time. 
In fact, there's a few stats that I have that we looked up. Uh, an university study uh, said that 80% of students on campuses today, college students that is, say they are interested in spirituality. Yet, an alarming 60 to 75% of church-going high school students will not be involved in the Christian faith by age 30. I've seen a little more research on this, and a lot of them do come back in their 30s because they have families and want their families to go to church. But just imagine that decade there. What, what could be if that was changed? As of 2016, about a third of teens say they do not believe in God. It's by Pew Research Center, and uh, they've actually called this generation right now the first post-Christian generation in America um, because of some of these trends that they're seeing. So I see this. I actually, when I first came to Davenport, I had no intention of doing uh, ministry there. I actually came up to Grand Rapids because I wanted to pursue seminary, and I just needed a side job to pay for that. And my dad said, work at Davenport. And so I just got a job there as an English tutor, and I had no intention of doing ministry, but you know how God works. And uh, I ran into student after student after student who had the exact same narrative. They would tell me, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a youth pastor. I went to this Christian school. I went on a missions trip. And I'd always say, that's great. What about now? And over and over and over again, I heard the exact same response. Oh, I don't do that anymore. It's not really for me. And what I realized is that there's a tendency to want to compromise to get friends instead of keep our convictions and be alone. And I think that sometimes we think what happens in college, and it's not all the time what we see in the movies with these big, scary, um, you know, uh, atheist professors or something, it, it's sometimes a lot more like you just find the wrong friend group and we just want to be in, and so we're willing to sacrifice and forfeit what we actually believe just to be in the group, right? Um, some, it's like somebody not wearing the Michigan jersey and actually becoming a Michigan fan, but just as soon as their team isn't winning, they put on a green jersey, right? Um, they, um, so there's some times where we do that, and we, what happens is we lose our identity because we're conforming. In fact, if you look back at uh, these verses that I just had us read, 17 through 19, um, go ahead and go to 18. These new groups come in, and you notice that the subject changes. Up until this point in the story, it was Joash acting. He was the subject, and it was he did this, he did this. And then here it says, they, the subject has changed. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols, verse 19, because of their guilt. And so you just see over and over again this they and there, they and there, because the subject, he's no longer Joash acting, it's the group. And God, because he loves him so much, sends prophets to um, reach to him, but he doesn't listen. Finally, a new character enters the stage, a guy by the name of Zechariah. And he's the new priest at the time. Zechariah enters, and he sees that these prophets um, have you know, told um, him to turn, and he's not turning. And so Zechariah approaches him, and he comes and says, because 
Um, or let's see. Yeah, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And he comes and says this to the king and the people. And do you think he listened? Unfortunately, Joash formed a coup and he a conspiracy against him. And in the temple, the house of the Lord, the place that Joash was protected for so many years, in that same place, he murdered the new priest, Zechariah. And here's where the plot thickens. Guess who, jo- or guess who Zechariah was the son of? Let me bring up the next verse. It says, King Joash did not remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada. Zechariah was the son of the man who protected him for all those years. This was, if, if, Je, if Jehoiada was the father figure and Zechariah was his son, then it would make Zechariah and Joash almost like brothers. In fact, if you read the story, you find out they were cousins, and he murdered him. Later on, verse 25, um, verse 25, it says, uh, his officials conspired against him. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him in his bed. And that is the epic and tragic account of King Joash. And you read this story, and if you're like me, you're like, how could a life that was filled with so much momentum and potential go to a life that ends with such darkness and tragedy? Was it just these other influences? Was it their fault? Paul does say later in the scripture that evil company does corrupt good character, and so we know that that's part of it. But I think there's something else at play here. Look at verse 21. It says, but they plotted against him, so we know that they were involved, these other people. And by order of who? The king. Even though these other people were involved, the king was ultimately the one who gave the order. I actually, uh, several years ago, I worked at a camp. And at the camp, we had to do this thing where uh, it was kind of organized. They had several tables, and they had a camp counselor at each table. And when it was your turn, you had to take the group up to go get the food, okay? And then you'd come back to your table. And so they had a very specific order and wanted you to stay in that order. Um, and so as the uh, you know, thing was going on, the whole event, and we're eating our food, uh, or not eating our food, we're waiting for our food, I just start uh, getting distracted and I'm having conversation with the campers. And all of a sudden, the lunch lady comes in and pounds on the table and says, it's your turn. And so I'm like, well, oh, okay, I guess it's our turn. And so I get up and I walk and take us all up there to get our food. And just then I hear the camp director get everybody's attention. And everybody listens up. And he goes, somebody went out of order. And all eyes go towards me. I'm like, oh, okay, well, so we all went back to our seat, waited our turn. It's a little embarrassed. And I was like, I'm never going to do that again. And we got our food actually at the time we were supposed to. And so dessert came around. <laughs> and so 
I, you know, we're finishing our food. I'm having conversation with the campers, and I get distracted. <laughs> Happens when I talk a lot, actually. Um, but um, I get distracted, and the lunch lady comes out, lunch lady, and uh, pounds on the table and says, it's your turn. And I look around. I don't know where we're at in the order. I'm like, oh, gosh. And so I just decide to get up there and hopefully, like, sneak up there. And so I get up there to go get my dessert. And just then, I hear the camp director get everybody's attention again. I'm like, oh, no. And he goes, somebody went out of order. And this time, everybody just laughs, okay? And it's all right at me. And so I, sensing the laughter coming in my direction, do one of these moves and, like, evade the laughter and then point at the lunch lady and say, it was her fault, <laughs> right? Now, nothing against lunch ladies. I actually at one point was one. Or not, not a lunch lady, but I, was, I worked at a school. Anyways, um, and so... so nothing against them, but I realized at some level, this, even though she was the one who came and told me, this was my responsibility, right? This is something we'd done before. I was the one supposed to pay attention to where it was. I was the one that got distracted. And I think so often, Joash, he could have gone, it was them. It was them that influenced me. And sure, they were influences. And I think some of us, we um, have a tendency and can do this where we point at culture or other things and the other influences. But at some level, if our faith is going to become our own, we need to say, I am responsible. And take personal responsibility for our choices. And I think that if Joe Ash had the inner reality of who God was in him and had taken personal ownership over his faith, he would have had the conviction and the goal to uh, resist the influences of these other people. He would have been able to stand up against them. Joe Ash had a choice. And because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you also have that same choice. And you, because the Holy Spirit is in you, you can have ownership over your faith and say, I'm going to take this ownership. It's not just going to be dependent on someone else, but it's going to become my faith. And when you can do that, you also can resist those influences. And all of us are faced with that same choice that Joash was faced with. All of us, you and I, even today, have to make that choice. Is my faith my own, or is it just someone else's? We're all in that intersection moment and have to make the decision of what we're going to do with our faith. Will you own it? And if we're going to own it, we have to know what does that mean to own it? So something I did was I decided to look up some indicators. What are some indicators that someone's taken ownership of our faith? Trying to put some practical skin to this. And so I asked a few people that I really look up to and just have a lot of respect for for their faith. And uh, a few answers that came in were, um, there was a lot about growing in your faith, growing in the fruits of the Spirit, tithing. Uh, Someone said wearing a WWJD bracelet. Um, and then some other people, actually, there was a lot about um, 
seeing young people where they're not asked to do it, but they're internally, they've made their own decision to do it. I asked um, Pastor Riley, who's uh, the student ministries pastor, who he actually just had uh, twin, twin girls, and I asked him, and he said, an indicator that someone has taken ownership over their faith is if they watch my twin girls without compensation. Um, <laughs> Um, actually, he gave me some really good words, too. He, uh, that's good, too. Um, but um, he, he said that uh, a lot about growth and seeing them grow even after they graduate. And I, I tried to, after I looked at all these different things people said about what it looks like to grow in their faith, I tried to distill them down to three things. So three things that we saw. And so here's the first one, is that they become... A cons- uh, they move from being just a consumer to a contributor, okay? A consumer to a contributor. Consumers just attend and receive everything. Contributors, they may also receive things, but they also give. And they uh, take in time to actually give to other people. And they're taking personal initiative and responsibility for their faith. At Davenport, where I work, I've got to see some students do some amazing things to take ownership over their faith. In fact, there's a picture here. Um, we actually, the first week of every uh, fall semester, we take a van and uh, we drive students um, to journey. And so this is a few years in a row of taking uh, students to journey. And uh, we've done it, I think, for five years now, something like that, um, and uh, taking them to journey here. And what's been really cool this year that hasn't happened in previous years is I'm part of a group chat with them, and I've seen them every week start to try and figure out how can we coordinate rides to bring more students, okay? And I've just been so impressed by that because I didn't even ask them to do that. But they were starting to say, look, this is ours, and we're going to do it. We're going to make a way. We're going to get people to church. Um, Another one is this. uh, Last year, actually, I think it was exactly this time last year, we went on a a six-week global missions project to East Asia, and a group of us there got to be on the Great Wall. Uh, one of them's here with us today. Um, and uh, got to be there. And what's really cool about this story is we got to go on the trip. But something that hit me about it was before we were going on the trip, I was trying to recruit some students to go. And I actually wasn't going to go on the trip. Okay, And so there was this one student who she had done a lot of international travel. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask her because I bet she'll go. And so I go and ask her and say, I think you should really consider this. And she goes, yeah, I I considered it, and I actually already registered, and I think you should go too. And I was like, oh, oh, um, i got to pray about that, you know. And, And so I realized that this was somebody turning the tables on me, and they suddenly were taking initiative for themselves, and it weren't waiting for me. And all these are stories of times where students I've seen become contributors, not just consumers. They've taken personal ownership and responsibility for their own growth and their own faith. Second one is this. The second one that I want us to look at is perseverance. Perseverance. I told the story already earlier about when I was in the classroom and the um, person laughed And uh, I saw the athlete who I respected stand up for his faith. And I realized from that that sometimes in life, we are not always going to, it's not always going to be received well that we're Christians. And sometimes there's this easy thing for like myself and for others to do where we just 
pretend that we're not or give in um, under pressure. And I watched this guy decide he was going to stand up for it even if he was being laughed at, even if there was a cost to it. For others of us, perseverance looks like maybe maybe the loss, you've gone through a very tough, tough time, like the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, or there's something that was really difficult that happened in your life. Something that maybe you're even processing right now that could be really hard in your the perseverance is when Joash lost his father figure, he had to decide, I'm, am I going to continue or not? And he didn't continue. Perseverance. Do you stick through the tough times? The last one that I have is this. The last one is they share it with others. So if you really own your faith, you share it. You share it if you own it. You own it when you share it, right? And uh, something just quick on how I've seen this. I actually get to serve and journey kids over here. And what's been really cool is in the past couple weeks, there's been a few kids that have given their life to Jesus, which has been really cool to see. Um, Yeah, that's that's awesome. And... um, I remember there was this, a couple kids after Easter, and they accepted Jesus. The next week, they came and um, they said, can I have a Bible? And I was like, oh, that's great. And so I give them, we give them a Bible because we want them to grow in their faith. And uh, the next week, they come back and say, can I have another Bible? And I'm like, I gave you a Bible last week. You know, did you read it already? Like, you know, um, and, and they say, no, I want to give it to my friend at school. And here's what's cool. No one's told them to do some of these things. They're deciding, I experienced this, and now I want to give it to someone else. Some of the students, some of the things I've worked with just so inspire me that I don't want to just keep it for myself, but I want to give it to the whole world. I want everybody to know Jesus. And so when we look at this and we see those indicators, when we see Joe Ash's story, how do we respond to a message like this? How do we respond to Joash's story? There's a uh, verse in the Bible uh, that Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5 just says this, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. See, it's so easy to want to look in a microscope instead of a mirror. But sometimes it's so easy to just see in other people like Joash and where they need to change. But sometimes I need to turn it around and look at myself and say, where do I need to change? It says, examine, not the person next to you, not your friend, but examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so to help us with this, um, I have some questions for us to reflect on. Some questions. And we're going to, in a minute, have the worship band uh, come up, and they're going to lead us in a song. But I want us to um, reflect on these questions as they do. Where do you find yourself in the story? Where do you find yourself in the story? Maybe you are someone that you would say, you know what, I am kind of like Jehoiada or um, Zachariah. I'm helping other people, right? I'm trying to help them grow in their faith. But maybe... Just maybe, is it possible that you found yourself drifting down shore? You found yourself at an intersection moment where you just pretended that that faith was yours. But if you were really honest with yourself and with the Lord, it's just been somebody else's. Somebody else loaned it to me instead of me owning it for myself. 
Second question. What or who are you most tempted to build your faith on besides Jesus? What or who are you most tempted to build your faith on besides Jesus? What is it if it was gone suddenly, your hope and your just like ability to just believe that life could be good would fade? What is it that you're maybe putting in the place of God? Is it a person, a friend, friendship group, a significant other, a mentor? What about a place, like a building? Or what about a, a program, a career? What is it that your faith is hinging on right now? I, I said for myself that for me, I was basing it off my parents and my friends, and that's good for a time. But eventually, it has to move to where it's being only built on Jesus because any other foundation will ultimately crumble as good as it is. Is your faith built on him and him alone? Last question. What's your move? What's your move? Here's what I mean. I gave you some ways to gauge yourself where you're at, but ultimately it comes down to between you and the Lord. And I just want us to consider as the Holy Spirit speaking to us right now and saying, I want you to move either from being a consumer to a contributor. I want you to start sharing your faith. I want you to persevere. Maybe you're going through a really tough thing right now. And God's saying, right now, I haven't left you. I'm still here. And I want you to know that. What is your move right now to take personal ownership? over your faith? What would that look like in your life? 